0: All right, well, hey, everybody, welcome to Eaglebrook Church. It's great to have you with us today. You know, I was thinking recently about the first time I ever came to church, and I remember being so nervous. I was nervous I was going to mess up something. You know, everybody else was going to be seated, and I would be standing up, or they were going to call on me and ask me a question in the middle of the service, or some crazy thing like that. And it's interesting how you can get nervous about coming to church for the first time. And so I just want you to know today that no matter which of our six campuses you're attending, or even if you're just checking this message out online, You'd be hard-pressed to mess up in this church. We're very informal. We're thoughtful that there are new people here every single week, and so you can just relax and enjoy the next 30 minutes or so. Uh, We are wrapping up a series today that we've been in for the last five weeks. It's called, I Believe in God, But... Because as we've been saying, a majority of Americans believe that God exists. About 90% to be exact, but that doesn't mean they don't have questions Doesn't mean they don't have some objections from time to time, which is what this series has been all about. Today's message might be the most controversial. It's certainly the most culturally relevant of all the topics that we've covered so far. Today's message is titled, I Believe in God, but Christians just seem so intolerant to me. When I was growing up, I used to watch this cartoon called The Jetsons. I don't know if you remember that one or not. But it was based on the cartoon, The Flintstones, which was, but The Flintstones was based in a prehistoric dinosaur era, and The Jetsons was in the future utopia that was the year 2062. They had a robot for a maid that would clean their house for them. They didn't drive around in cars, they flew in hovercrafts. And so when I was a little kid, I thought, that's what the future is going to be like. Well, now it's 2017, and I'm still cleaning my own house and driving a car. I'm rather disappointed with all of us that we haven't made more progress in this. But every so often, I'll catch myself and I'll go, finally, I'm living like the Jetsons. I had one of those moments recently, or a couple years ago rather, in all places, a Burger King. Walked into a Burger King, and here's what I saw. A computerized pop machine... Now, these have become more popular in the last few years. They have them at Noodles & Company and BW3s and places like that. But when I saw this for the first time, I was in complete awe. The way it works is you push a button for Coke, and then it takes you to a second screen where they ask you, do you want lime Coke, cherry Coke, cherry vanilla Coke? There was at least seven different variations of Coke that you could get. And you can do that for Sprite, root beer, you name it. Now, you have to understand, I have the taste buds of a six-year-old. So when I go to the Twins game with my kids, I'm fighting over the cotton candy with them. I want that as much as they do. And so when I saw this pop machine, I could not help myself. I stood next to it, and I tried a sample of the lime Coke. Then I poured that out. Then I tried a sample of the vanilla Coke, poured that out. Then I tried the vanilla root beer, poured that out. I tried 18 variations of pop in five minutes. And then I got incredibly sick. I mean, seriously, I practically crawled out to my car. But here's my point in sharing that with you. A lot of people in our world today look at all of the religions kind of like that pop machine. They'll say, you know what, there's all these different flavors, but they're all just Coke. In other words, yeah, there's Christianity, there's Islam, there's Mormonism, there's Buddhism, different flavors maybe, but they're all just Coke, They all uh, teach us to love one another. They all believe in a God of some sort. And so even though they may have some different flavors to them, essentially at their core, they're the same. And anyone who says otherwise is what? They are intolerant. Or what about morality? Many people today view morality more like that pop machine than they do a bank. At a bank, for instance, there's a definitive standard of truth. For example, if you went into the bank and you deposit $1,000, and then a week later you come back and say, well, I'd like to make a withdrawal, what would you do if the bank teller looked at you and said, sorry, there's no money in your account? Well, you go, well, wait a minute. Yes, there is. I just made a deposit last week. Now, what would you do if the bank teller looked at you and said, whoa, why are you being so narrow-minded? Why are, why are you being so intolerant of my view that your bank account is empty? I mean, who are you to say that you're right and I'm wrong? I mean, maybe that's true for you, but it's, it's not true for me. Well, that wouldn't fly in a bank, would it? Because in a bank, there's a definitive standard of truth. But many people today don't look at morality like a bank. They look at it more like that pot machine. You might have your favorite combination, but there's really no right and wrong. It kind of depends on your individual palate. In fact, recently I was doing a scroll through Facebook as I was preparing For this message, and I came across a blog by a famous Christian blogger, and he had included a letter that was written to him, which was interesting because the letter was quite critical of something that he had written, but I want to read to you this letter that was written to this Christian blogger. It said this, dear so-and-so, I won't say their name, the Jesus I believe in wants people to be compassionate towards one another not judgmental because of who they love or what lifestyle they choose or what gender they identify as. Who are you to say what's right and wrong? You have no right to say what sin is. Our job is to be compassionate to all, not to be intolerant by talking about sin. Now, I'm not familiar with this particular blogger, so maybe he does lack compassion. I don't know. But I read that to you because it includes so many of the popular phrases that you hear today. Phrases like, well, the Jesus that I know would, or the Jesus I believe in would, or who are you to say what's right and what's wrong? Who are you to say what a sin is? You're just being judgmental. You're being intolerant. The word intolerant has changed over the years. What's interesting to note is how it's changed in the last 25 years or so. You see, the word tolerance used to mean that you had a deep disagreement with someone But you could have that disagreement in a respectful kind of way. The word tolerate implied as much. We disagree with one another. That's why we have to tolerate one another. But we could do so in a way that was humble and it was gentle in our approach. In other words, tolerance had more to do with your tone and your attitude than anything else. But over the last 25 years or so, the definition of tolerance has begun to shift some. And these days, you are likely to be labeled as intolerant if you hold to certain beliefs. In other words, if you have certain beliefs about Jesus being the only way to heaven or certain beliefs about marriage, you are likely to be labeled as intolerant no matter how loving or gentle your tone might be. But that's odd to me. Because if I walked up to someone on the street and I said, hey, you know, I, out of love for you, I, I just genuinely have to say that... Jesus is the way, you have to put your faith in Jesus to be saved, and you look at me and you go, oh, you are such a hateful bigot. You are so narrow-minded. You are so intolerant. Are you being tolerant of me? Well, no, actually, you're not being intolerant of me. You're just as intolerant, if not more. It's just that you're intolerant over different issues and towards different groups. In this case, towards a Christian who believes that you have to have faith in Christ to be saved. In fact, some of the most intolerant people that I've ever met in my life are the ones who get super angry and start yelling about how intolerant everyone else is. It seems that the only sin to them is when you call something a sin. But that clearly contradicts itself, and so therefore it cannot be true. Instead of adopting this new definition of tolerance, I propose that we adopt one that author Timothy Keller has written about. Keller is a graduate of Bucknell University. He's a brilliant thinker and writer, he says this. He says tolerance is about how you treat people with whom you disagree. In other words, I don't have to give up my beliefs to be tolerant. You don't have to give up your beliefs to be tolerant. We all have our beliefs. We can even argue about those beliefs and talk about them in a passionate kind of way because tolerance is less about your beliefs and more about how your beliefs lead you to treat people with whom you disagree. Which leads to the question that I wanna raise today, which is this, how do you disagree well? Specifically, how do you disagree with someone else who might disagree with you unfairly? And they call you intolerant simply because you don't agree with them about a particular issue. And I'm talking about all disagreements here. I'm talking about Democrats and Republicans. Liberals and conservatives. I'm talking about other Christians that you might have a theological disagreement with. I'm talking about homeschool versus private school versus public school. I'm talking about cloth diapers versus disposable diapers. Breastfeeding versus bottle feeding, to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. Stay-at-home parents versus both working parents. I'm talking about grass-fed, no GMOs, no antibiotics, Versus they know your first name at McDonald's, and they do, but you're just embarrassed to tell anybody that that's the truth, and all of the other disagreements that we find in our culture today. How do you disagree with another person well? Well, to answer that question, I want to take you to a verse from the Bible that I taught on last year, but I believe it's so significant for our generation today that I wanted to revisit it. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And before I read this verse to you, let me just set a little bit of context. It says in verse 1 that this is who Peter is writing to. He says, I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the lands of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, the province of Asia, and Bithynia. I want you to notice that he says that these people are foreigners. In other words, they're living in a land around some people that they probably had some disagreements with. Not only did they have some disagreements with them, but a little bit later in Peter, he says that they were being persecuted for their faith. In other words, they were being threatened, mocked, ridiculed, maybe even physically harmed because of their beliefs in Jesus. This still happens today, by the way. Several weeks ago in Egypt, ISIS bombed several Christian churches. I mean, can you imagine? Come to church with your wife and kids, and all of a sudden, your life is turned upside down. Just recently, there was a shooting a couple days ago on a bus that was taking people who were touring different churches in Egypt. It's happening all around the world. In fact, I was talking to someone recently, and he was kind of making fun of this idea that Christians say, oh, we're so persecuted, we've got it so hard. And I said to him, I said, well, you're clearly an American, Because around the world today, more Christians are losing their life than at any other point in human history. But it happens within our borders as well. It happens in a college classroom when a professor mocks one of his or her own students in front of their peers simply because they happen to believe that there's a God who created the world. It happens around dinner tables when you get together with your extended family and you just know. Like, there's that one topic, and you don't bring that up because that's not going to be real well accepted. It happens when you log on to Facebook, and there's that one person who keeps posting about that one issue, and they keep posting videos. And your spouse will walk into the room, like, What are you doing? You're like, I'm looking at Facebook, people on Facebook, making me so angry you haven't seen this person in five years face-to-face and you can't stand them, right? Like you talk to them all about them all the time. Like I can't stand that person. And you don't even see them anymore. So never before has it been more relevant to talk about how can we disagree well. Here's Peter's answer in verse 15. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I see two ways that we can disagree well right from this verse. The first one is this. Be ready to give an answer. When I was growing up, I didn't think a whole lot about God. I didn't think a whole lot about Jesus. But then when I was in college, I started to ask the big questions of life. And I started to wonder, why am I on earth and what's my purpose? And so I found some of the Christians that I knew and I started to ask them questions. I would say things like, well, do you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because dead people don't come back to life, in case you hadn't noticed. And I would say, you know, do you really think the Bible is what we should base our life on? Why not the Quran or some other ancient book? You want to know the the answer I got from most college-age Christians? They would say things like this to me. They'd say, well, uh, you know, um, my my parents told me once, uh, you know, I think my church teaches this. Uh, uh, you just have to have faith. That's it. You just have to have faith. And that wasn't good enough for me. I remember thinking, faith in what? Faith in myself? Faith in Jesus? Faith in some other higher power? Right? What does that even mean? I was amazed at how many college-age Christians had no idea why they believed what they believed. To find answers, I had to read. I read two books by Lee Strobel, Case for Christ and Case for Faith. And we've talked about Lee before, but he was an atheist who worked at the Chicago Tribune. But he used his skeptical personality to interview different scholars. And he would ask him questions like, well, did Jesus really rise from the dead? I listened to tapes by a guy named Ravi Zacharias. Ravi grew up in Madras, India. He was an atheist until he was 17 years old, at which time he attempted suicide by ingesting poison. He saw no reason to live. But when he was in the hospital room, one of the hospital workers brought him a Bible and said, hey, I need you to read John chapter 14. And he read the words of Jesus in John 14 where Jesus says, because I live, you also can live. And Ravi thought, if Jesus Christ lives, then that changes everything for me. And so he went on a truth quest. And today he lectures at Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge and all of the other leading universities on the truth of Jesus Christ and the existence of God. He has a podcast called Let My People Think, and I would listen to it all the time because I would want to know the answer for why I believed what I believed. Several years ago, I was meeting with an atheist at our White Bear Lake campus, and for two hours, he peppered me with questions. He would say things like, you know, do you really believe that Noah's Ark happened? Because, I mean, you're telling me that a lion got on the same boat with a zebra? Like, I've watched National Geographic. I know that doesn't end real well. And for two hours, I tried to give him intelligent answers. Now, at the end of that two-hour two period of time, he did not go, you know what, I'm a Christian now. But what he did say to me was, I never knew that Christians had good answers to these questions. He said, I thought everybody who believed in God just was brainwashed by their parents growing up. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Now, some of you might be listening to this with a little bit of suspicion. Because we live in a culture that tends to be suspicious of answers. Answers seem rigid to some people. Who are we to say that we're right and another person is wrong? Some people will even go so far as to say that answers lead to intolerance, which leads to violence. And we don't need more violence in the world today, especially religiously induced violence. And so therefore, out of a pure heart in some ways, they'll say, well, there is no such thing as right and wrong everything's gray what's true for you is you know may not be true for me and that kind of thinking reminds me of a skit that was done on Saturday Night Live a few years ago it was one of those Jack Handy's deep thoughts he used to love these here was what he said he said instead of having answers on a math test they should call them impressions and if you got a different impression so what can't we all just be brothers that's our culture today no right, no wrong, just different impressions. But I want you to think about this for a moment with me. Imagine that you went to the doctor, and your doctor said to you, you are a magnificent physical specimen. I mean, you have the body of an Olympian. This has never happened to me, by the way. and We're just imagining here. Some of you are like, yeah, I, I kind of got that idea. Uh, but imagine your doctor says you are a magnificent physical specimen, And then later on that day, as you're walking up some stairs, your heart gives out. You're rushed to the hospital, and you find out that your arteries are so clogged, you are one Krispy Kreme away from the Grim Reaper. And so you go back to the doctor, and you go, what gives? You told me my body was in incredible shape. And the doctor goes, yeah, I I, I could tell that your body was worse off than the Pillsbury Doughboy, but... I didn't want to come across as arrogant, like I had all the answers. And, you know, sometimes when I tell people they need to make some changes to their lifestyle or to their diet, they get offended by that. And I just, I want this to be a safe place where you feel loved and accepted. (laughs) You would go, well, that's great, Doc, but I, I didn't need an ego boost here. What I really needed was for you to tell me the truth. Do you see that sometimes an answer may sound arrogant, but it's actually what can save a person's life? In fact, I was talking to a young man recently, and he was asking me all these questions. And he said, you know, my viewpoint is that all religions lead to God. There's just different roads that lead into the same city. And I said, you know, that, that's an appealing idea. I would love to be able to stand in front of people and go, you know what, it doesn't matter what you believe or who you believe in, you just be you and you're going to be fine. But I said, just take Islam and Christianity for example. The three things that Jesus says you must believe in Christianity, that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross to pay for our sins, and that he rose again, Islam declares that all those are false. And not only that, but Islam says that if you worship Jesus as God, you could be in danger of hell. I said, I want you to contrast that to what Jesus himself said. In John 14, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And I said to this young man, I said, you know, as a pastor, one day I'm going to have to stand before God and I'm going to have to give an account of my life. And what if I would have told people, you know what, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you believe in or who you believe in. It doesn't, I don't know what Jesus meant here, but just forget about that. I could be in trouble on Judgment Day. I could have God looking at me going, hey, this was pretty clear what Jesus said. And just because you wanted to be liked, just because you wanted to people please, you led thousands of people away from eternal life. You gave thousands of people a false sense of hope and security, that you were just like that doctor who gave someone a false sense of hope and security over their health just because you wanted to create a safe kind of loving environment. But what they really needed, what would have been the most loving thing to do, would have been to tell them the truth. In fact, there are some things the Bible says that God does not tolerate. I don't know if that surprises you or not, but let me show you a few of these verses Psalm 101, God says, I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. Won't tolerate it. Psalm 5:4, O oh God, you take no pleasure in wickedness. You cannot tolerate the sins of the wicked. And then in Revelation chapter 2, he's speaking to a church and he says, This, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, but by her teaching she misleads my servants, my people, into sexual immorality. In other words, there are certain things God doesn't tolerate. He doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't tolerate, tolerate false teachers who lead people into sexual sin. And he says that we shouldn't tolerate those either. Now, maybe that makes you a little uncomfortable. And you say, you know what, are you really saying we shouldn't tolerate certain beliefs or ideas or even groups of people? And, and let me just seal the deal here for you by showing you that you already do this. No need to raise any hands, but how many of us here would say that we should tolerate Nazism? That we should just, you know, we need to be a loving environment. That may be true for them, but it's not true for us, and we should just be tolerant of that. Well, no. None of us would say that. What about child sacrifice or child abuse? What about the Ku Klux Klan? No, because we instinctively, we intuitively know that there are certain beliefs that we shouldn't just simply tolerate, but we should actively speak out against. We should not tolerate injustice to minorities or the unborn. We should not tolerate a greed that destroys the environment or a new age movement that destroys people's souls. But Peter says to do that, you have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. It's the first way to disagree well. The second way to disagree well is this, to do so with gentleness and respect. So Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have, but then look at what he says next. Because it's not just about having the answer. It's not just about being right. Lord, have mercy if we don't love people well. Because we're so concerned with winning arguments and elections. That would be tragic. Because look at what Peter says next. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect. That's tolerance. And that's my hope for our church and for our country. Can we hold to what we believe is true? Can we hold to our convictions about what God says is true? Can we even be willing to debate or argue those beliefs? But can we do so with gentleness and respect? Here's what gentleness is gentleness is without anger, it's without yelling, it's without ranting or or, or calling, name calling. Gentleness means that our tone is soft and not harsh. Here's what respect is. Respect means that you remember that this person you disagree with is made in the image of Almighty God Himself and has infinite value and worth to Him. It means that we listen and try to understand this other person's perspective without immediately calling for them to be fired or censored or dismissed. Let me put some flesh and blood on this for you. Several years ago, Dan Cathy, who's the CEO of Chick-fil-A restaurant was asked by a reporter for his views on marriage. And Kathy just very transparently and honestly said, well, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, and and I believe the Bible advocates for that as well. And that one statement set off a highly organized and publicized protest of Kathy, his beliefs about the Bible, and his company, which was boycotted by many. But what didn't initially make the news was how Kathy responded to those Who disagreed with him. You see, very quietly he reached out to his strongest critic, a gay activist named Shane Windmeyer. In fact, we wouldn't even know that he had done this, except for the fact that Windmeyer himself wrote about it in the Huffington Post. And I want to read to you what Shane Windmeyer said about his encounter, his meeting with Dan Cathy. He writes this He said, It's not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. Never once did Dan Cathy ask our organization to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, he listened intently to our concerns. He sought first to understand instead of to be understood. Cathy offered no apologies about his genuine beliefs about marriage, nor did he change his position. But his demeanor was one of respect, kindness, and openness. Deep disagreement, no apologies for that disagreement, no changing of your convictions, but at the same time, friendship, love, gentleness, and respect. By the way, Mr. Windmire displayed those exact same characteristics by writing such a kind and honoring article about a man that he vehemently disagrees with. In fact, sometimes people will email me and they'll they'll ask a question like, what is Eaglebrook's stance on this issue? And, and you can just tell that if we don't agree with them on this issue, boy, they're, they're never coming through the doors. And one of the things that I always write back is I say, you know, nobody in this church agrees about everything. I mean, there's not one person in this church, my wife included, who agrees with me on every single issue. You're all wrong. Okay, I just want you to know that you're, you're all absolutely wrong. But if if the litmus test was that you needed to agree to come, well, then I'd be standing up here by myself. We don't gather together because we agree on every single issue. We gather together because we want to know Jesus Christ and the difference that he can make in a person's life. Colossians 4 verse 5 says this. says, Live wisely among those who are not Christians and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and effective, so that you will have the right answer for everyone. Notice again the connection. He says we're to have an answer, but how should we communicate that answer with graciousness and effectiveness? Yelling, anger, social media rants are not necessarily effective. What is effective is speaking the truth in love. My father-in-law was sober for 12 years, and then he relapsed for 15 And it was a very dark time in his life. In fact, sometimes when he would even come to church, he'd have a cooler of beer out in the car that he couldn't wait to get to afterwards. But despite that, God kept loving him. And God kept pursuing him. And then one day, my brother in law, his son, went to his dad and he said, Dad, I hate your sin. I hate what I see it doing to your life. I mean, it, it is ruining your life. But I want you to know that even if you relapsed for the rest of your life, I would still love you, that as your son, I will love you unconditionally. And that was one of the moments when my father-in-law began to change. When he saw the unconditional love of God played out in front of him in his own life, it changed him. He checked into treatment. He goes to our Quest 180 Addiction Recovery Ministry. He never misses church. He's been several, or sober now for several years. And God is using his life in a powerful way. And what I want to say to you today is this. God can do the very same thing in your life as well. God may hate your sin, He may not tolerate it in your life. It's because he hates what it's doing to you. He hates to see the way that it's destroying your life and ruining relationships. But you need to know that God will not stop loving you. And he will not stop pursuing you. In fact, look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter two, verse four. It says, don't you realize how kind, tolerant, tolerant, and patient God has been with you? Or don't you care? Can't you see how kind he has been in giving you the time to turn from your sin? And that's what I want to ask some of you today. Don't you realize how tolerant God has been with you? How patient he has been with you? How kind he has been to give you more time in this life to turn from your sins. But one day there won't be any more time. One day you'll be standing before him to give an account of your life. At the beginning of this series, I asked some of you who weren't sure where you were at with God. I said, would you give it five weeks? Would you come to church for the next five weeks and bring your questions and we'll do our best to answer some of them. And maybe we answered all of your questions and maybe we didn't. But what if today you said, you know what, I'm gonna put my questions aside for just a moment. Because God, I need you. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness and I need your mercy. And God, I realize right now how tolerant you've been to me and how kind you've been to me and how you've been giving me time to turn from my sins and so maybe today is your day to do just that. You know, I don't know about you, but every so often, even today still in my life, there comes a moment where I need to be reminded of how tolerant God has been to me and how patient he is with me. And I need to have a moment where I say, God, I'm turning from that sin, that one sin that keeps holding me back from you and separating me from others. And I need to turn from it and I need to really recommit myself to God. And so I want to give you an opportunity to do that today at all of our campuses. At all of our campuses, would you stand with me as we close in final prayer? Jesus, how kind and how tolerant and how patient have you been with every single person in this church or watching this message. God, there's so many times when we deserved much worse and yet you were tolerant with us and you were patient with us and and you were kind to give us more time. But for some of us today, God, it's a moment to say, you know what, I I do need to turn from that sin. I don't want to take advantage of your tolerance and your patience another day. But God, I want to turn from my sin and I want to recommit myself to Jesus Christ. I want to recommit to getting to know him and to trusting him every single day. And God, for that person who maybe has been with us through this series but isn't really sure where they're at with God, Lord, would you pursue them? Would you love them? Would you let them know that you never give up on them and that you love them no matter what? But Lord, I pray today that your love and your patience and your kindness would lead them to you, would draw them to you, and that they would have a moment where they would say, Jesus Christ, I love you and I put my faith in you. And God, for others of us, maybe it's just a moment to say, Thank you, God and to recommit ourselves a little bit in a certain area of our life. But whatever it is, God, I thank you that you are a God who is tolerant. And I pray that we would be tolerant people as well, meaning that we would hold to our beliefs about you, that we would honor you with that, but we would do so with gentleness and with respect. God, would our church have a reputation of loving people well, no matter if they agree with us or disagree with us on any issue, but we would show gentleness and respect in all interactions. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer, come on down front. Otherwise, have a great day, everybody.